I, I can't tell you, although I'm going to try, how excited I am about the series that we're in um, because of how important I think the series that we're in is. We're, we're doing a series at the moment that we've called We Believe, uh, which is basically just a very simple series on the Nicene Creed, and we started it last week. And the reason that we're doing this series is I, I don't think that we have ever lived or I have ever lived in a time where it's more important for us to work out what we fundamentally believe. On what do we stand? What is unequivocal for us? What is unshakable for us? You see, the world is changing so quick. I can't tell you, if you've come here today and you're a fresher and you're just starting college or, or university and you're here for four years, the world will be radically different in four years' time than it is right now. Everything is moving, and that's been true for like for a few decades. Everything's been moving real quick, but it's, ra- it's ratcheting up and it's changing like minute by minute, day by day, month by month, everything is shifting. And I could give you a whole spiel as to why I think it's shifting, but it's shifting. You know, Europe will be different in four years' time than it is right now. I, I imagine the UK may be different in four years' time than it is right now. America, America, will be different in four years' time than it is right now. The way we do politics, the way we relate to one another, what people think about God, how people treat those who believe in God, it's all shifting and it's changing. And I don't say that to be a doom merchant, I think it's a very exciting time to live. I think it's perhaps the most exciting time to live. The opportunities for faith, the opportunities for people who want to take hold of this world in in gracious and loving and godly ways are totally incredible at this time. But we have to know what we believe. In the shaking, those who will do the shaping know what they believe. And so we're here to study the, the, the Nicene Creed. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because the Nicene Creed, written initially in 325 uh, AD, uh, is basically what Christians believe. I mean, uh, Christians will argue about certain things, but basically every type of Christian down the years, every type of follower of Jesus has basically believed the fundamentals of the Nicene Creed. Whether you're Catholic or Protestant, whether you're loosey-goosey or tied up tight, whatever kind of Christian you are, whether it's, you know, we speak in tongues, we don't speak in tongues, we read our Bible, pray every day kind of Christians, whatever kind of Christian you are, Nicene Creed is basically what we believe. And it was formed... Because the world was shaking and there needed to be some shaping. It was formed because something incredible had happened. This group of Jesus followers, which were just a tiny, a tiny minority, had suddenly become a majority in the Roman Empire. Suddenly this thing which was, which was happening in a corner of Israel had suddenly become 50% of the known world were following Jesus. And and, and no one was quite sure exactly what they fundamentally believed. I mean, they had some stories about Jesus. They called them Gospels. There were probably about 20 of them at the time. And then there was some Old Testament stuff, the Jewish scriptures. And then there were these letters written by a guy called Paul. And and, and they were trying to work out what was in and what was out and what was true and what wasn't true. And how do you begin to read this stuff? How do you make sense of it? And so the great and the good of the Christian faith came to a place called Nicaea in northern Turkey and they sat together and they said, let's wrestle this out. 
Let's try and work out who is this God? What does it mean to be like that? How do we follow him? Who is Jesus? Who is the Holy Spirit? What's the church all about? What does it mean for us to be the followers of Jesus? And I, I for one, am just so thankful they did that. We really can see what we believe. And so we're going to study uh, tonight the second clause. Last week we spent like hours talking about we believe in one God. That's all we got through. And I just went on and on and on. We believe in one God. But don't worry, it's going to be, I nearly promise it's going to be shorter tonight. Probably isn't, but who knows. Tonight we're going to take a look at we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, the creator of all, of all things, the heavens and the earth, of things that are seen and unseen. And we're going to try and understand why is it so important what you believe? Well, last week we said it's really important what you believe because what you believe in your head affects how you act with your heart, affects the actions of your life, which affect the outcomes of your life. Let me say that again. What you believe in your head about something affects how you feel in your heart about something, affects the actions that you put in place in your life, which affect the outcomes of your life. So if you've got some really weird ideas about life, you'll begin to act in weird ways and you'll have weird outcomes. But if you've got some solid understanding about who you are and who God is and what this life is all about, then you'll act in a way that is consistent with those beliefs and the outcomes of your life will flow with God stuff. We believe in one God. Do you know, before we read this, this creed together, I want you to understand this. This is not me trying to get you to be boring and just recite stuff by rote so you can hang out in church and do this. Every time you read the creed, it's like a physical and verbal rebellion against a predominative narrative. It's like you saying, I'm pledging to follow this God. I'm not standing the weight of my life on stuff anymore. I'm not standing the weight of my life on relationships anymore. I'm not standing the whole of the weight of my life on what everyone else is doing, what culture says I should do, or what tradition says I should do. I'm standing the whole of my, the weight of my life on this God. I'm going to stand in direct opposition to the predominant narrative of, of this world, which says other than this. We believe in one God. So what I'd like to do is something different. Would you stand with me? And if you, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but you do have to stand. <laughs> if you can stand, would you stand with me? And we're going to read, we're going to read this. And um, why don't we, as we read this, why don't we read it quietly? This, you know, this is a church where we like to do things noisy. And every now and again, it's really nice to do something quiet. And so why don't we whisper this? Together, as we say and affirm, we, we believe in one God. So let's say together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. 
begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's take a seat and let's pray. So why didn't you just um, take a moment for yourself and uh, why didn't you just pray for yourself? And, and, and the prayer is this. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Why don't you just pray that? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. I wonder if you know what your name means. I wonder if you know what your name means. If you do know what your name means, turn to the person next to you. It's called interaction. And tell the person next to you what your name means and whether you like it or not. Okay? You can do this. What does your name mean? Okay, that's plenty, of, that's plenty of interaction. So often, so often people are called things that suit, don't they, aren't they? Their, their names mean something to them, um, and it's really significant when, when it does. My name is Carl, which means manly. I love that. My name is Carl, it means manly. And, uh, but, but there is a verse in Scripture, and you'll find it in, in Psalm, chapter, uh, verse, Psalm 9, and it says this. Those who know your name, O God, will trust you. Those who know your name, O God, will trust you. Why does the psalmist say that? The psalmist says it because he knows that the name of God is shot through with the character of God, with the perfections of God, and the promises of God. And so if we understand or understood or could get our head around what God is called and what that actually means for us, it will change everything because we will find ourselves able to stand the weight of our life on him. Your name, O oh God, 
your name, O oh God, if those who know your name will trust you. And, and I wanted to give a very, very simple teaching this evening. But if you can stay with it, and you can keep your eyes down, and you can even take notes, which encourages me that you're listening. If, if you can stay with this simple teaching, it could change everything about the way in which you view God and the way in which you view yourself and the way in which you view life. Because there is a secret right at the heart of the second clause of the Nicene Creed, which, I mean, there's almost nothing coming down the road at you that's better than this. So listen up. The, 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 the framers of the Nicene Creed said, we believe in one God. We believe that he is the Father. We believe that he is almighty. We believe that he is the creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen. And right in the heart of that whole statement is something that if you allow it, will change your world. Those who know your name will trust you. And the name that the framers gave God right at the outset, right at the beginning, was the name Father. You know what, if you ever did a study on the names of God, one of the first times in which God ever calls out his name to anybody, you'll find it in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses is saying, God, I don't know. God meets Moses in a burning bush and Moses says, I don't know what your name is. And if I don't know what your name is, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And God says this enigmatic thing. He says, my name is I am. I think Moses says, great, thanks. That's really cool. Great for you. Your name is I am. And, God, and what, but what Moses doesn't understand is that in that very statement, God is saying something deeply profound. He's saying, I, I, I owe my existence to nothing. There was nothing before me. I am who I am. I have perfect freedom and I have perfect power to be who I decide I'm going to be. And then God does this really cool thing throughout the rest of the Old Testament. He begins to build on that enigmatic statement. And he says, I am. And then he starts to add endings to the I am name. And he starts to reveal himself to the people of God as it's important for them to get who he is. And he says, I am Jireh the God who provides. And then he says, I am Shalom, the God who is peace. And then he says, I am Shama, the God who is there. And then he says, I am Rafe, the God who eternally heals, the God who eternally mends. And then he says, I am Ra, the God who is shepherd. And he does this again and again and again. He says, I am Sabaoth, Lord of the angel armies. And what the people of Israel are getting is this, this creep revelation of the person of God layer upon layer upon layer upon layer which is giving them confidence to say we can trust him because he's awesome and he's powerful and he's intimate and he's relational and we're going for him and then as we get to the climax of the whole of world history of the whole of the Bible God reveals himself ultimately in the person Jesus and Jesus shows up the scripture says that Jesus is God with skin on. So if you want to know what God looks like, check out Jesus. You know, John chapter 1, he put on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. In other words, if God, Jesus is God fleshing himself out for you and for me. No one has ever seen God, says John. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In other words, Jesus is God. 
check him out. And then Jesus does this cool thing. And he takes the Old Testament words and he starts to build on them. And he says, I am the great shepherd of the sheep. I am the gate of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In a world that's lost its way, I'm the way. In a world where the truth is relative, your truth, my truth, any truth you want to have, I am truth definitive that you can stand the weight of your life on. In a world where life is so often a pretense and a sham, and you pretend you're having life, but you're not really having life, I'm life that's full and content and brings meaning and satisfaction. Jesus says, I am God, and this is what God is like. And you know, when Jesus starts to talk about God the Father, there is one name that he uses again and again and again. He calls him Father. In fact, he calls him Abba. Abba. He calls him Dad. He calls him Dad, Da, or Daddy. It's relational, it's intimate. He says, This God is a God who wants to walk with you. And so the framers wanted to say, if you understood, if you really understood that God is your father, it would change everything. I mean, like everything, you'd stop being anxious about life. You'd stop trying to take hold of things yourself. You'd stop trying to control things. You'd stop being panicked about stuff. You'd stop worrying about whether the finances are going to work and and the children are going to be okay and whether the illness is going to sort itself out because you've got a dad. And he's not any dad. He's the dad. And just in case you didn't get that, they say, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. The Father Almighty. And when, and when the old school theologians would talk about Almighty God, they would use four words which talk of the four virtues of God that if you can get these in your head today, it, it will be significant. They're on the screen behind me. They would talk about the fact that God is omnipresent basically means exactly what it says on the tin. He's there, and he's here, and he's home, and there's no place you can go where he's not. The psalmist says this, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed on the depths, you're there. If I can fly as fast as the speed of light, I can't get ahead of you because you're always there. There is no place that God isn't. Sometimes I think as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we think we carry God into this world. That's got to be really heavy, hasn't it? It's probably why we're so tired. No, 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 no. There is a sense in which God dwells in us and lives in us, but there is a real sense wherever you go, he's already there. Before you ask, he's already there. He's omnipresent and he's omniscient, which means he knows all things and he sees all things. Which, to be honest, can be quite freaky, can't it? I mean, right now God knows exactly what you're thinking and why you're thinking it. Right now God knows why you're worried and what you're concerned about and what you want to eat after I've finished speaking. Right now God knows everything. He knows your concerns. He knows what you're, what you're thinking about. He knows what, what you're worried about for the future. And he totally understands. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can fool God None of the time. Your life is an open book to him. He is omniscient. 
And then they said that God is omnipotent, which is really cool because it basically means he can do anything. There is nothing you can imagine that he cannot do. In fact, the very definition of God is that he can do whatever he wants to do and there is nothing that he cannot do apart from the things that he said he cannot do, like lie. He can do absolutely anything. You know, as as a young boy growing up, uh, you know, I was about 10, 11, 12, you kind of think you can do everything. You kind of think you can make everything happen. You kind of think that, well, maybe it's just me, maybe. But you kind of think you can jump every stream. You can, you can ride anything. You can solve every mystery. You can do the whole thing. But you get to about 13 and you realize you can do none of those things. You can't, the, the stuff that's really important in life, you can't fix. The stuff that's really difficult in life, you can't solve. You always come to the end of yourself. But God is a God who's on. There is nothing he cannot do. There is nowhere he is not. There is nothing he does not know. And then they use the word. I love the, I love the way words sound. He used, they use the word immutable. Which basically means he doesn't change. James, when he writes his letter, said this. There is no shadow of turning with God. Which is so cool. I reckon this is the best quality. Yeah, it seems like the worst, but this is the best thing. It basically means that God is never going to change one iota from what he has always been and what he's always said he's going to do. In your life, you probably want most things to change. You want your financial situation to change, your relational situation to take off, you want your career to take off, you want, you want stuff around you to change and shift and progress is incredible. But the one thing you do not want to change is the character and personality and immutability of God. You want him to be absolutely certain, a rock solid rock on which you can stand because he is not shifting and he is not changing what he always was, he will be. What he said he's going to do, you can totally rely upon him, his word, his spirit he's not changing isn't that cool three people think that's really cool the rest of you are really not sure but you know that's that's so cool particularly in a world where everything is changing and everything is shifting and everything is turned on his head and the framers wanted to say this is what father is like this is how incredible he is this is how cool he is you can bank your life on him And then they said, and he's the creator. Or or in some versions, he's the maker of heaven and earth. Now, the the word maker here is perhaps a little unfortunate. It it kind of gives the impression that God uh, might be going down the divine garden shed at the weekend to cobble something together. You know, kind of God, mm, got some time at the weekend, go down the garden shed, make something up, use some of this, use some of this tie something together and we'll sort of solve the world thing. Uh, but, but clearly that's not what we're being told. We're being told that there was nothing that pre-existed God. God makes and creates out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Latin. Out of nothing. He breathes and it comes into being. There is nothing that he did not Create. He's the starter. He's the, he's the prime mover. He's the initiator. And, and if you can get your head around this for just a second, it's crazy stuff. I, I live out in the country now, and I'm a total townie, so everything is like new to me, and it's freaky. I, I really don't like the dark. There are no streetlights. No one shows up. And, and I'm, I'm sitting in our conservatory, and I'm looking up at the stars, and I spend my time going, Nikki, wow, like stars. 
loads of them. And I'm starting to count the stars. And I'm going like, it's one, two. And then one moves. There's another one you have to start again. They're like stars. And it's just crazy stuff. There's none of that light pollution stuff that you get in the city. And, 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 and I, I looked up how many stars are there. In fact, I, I Googled counting stars. And I got this One Republic stuff. Like for about 10 pages. Counting stars. And then I, I, I try to work out how many stars there, there are in the universe. And, and, and here's, the, here's the number. 10 in, in, in our observable universe, in other words, what, just what we can see, 10 to the power 25, which is like one with 25 noughts. Now, I've got no idea what that is. I've got no idea what it means. But it's just huge, isn't it? And the Bible says something really cool. It says, not only did God create all these things, but he names them. They're the work of his fingertips. It's like his handiwork. It's like his, it's like his hobby. It's what God does. He names stars. How incredible is God? And how beautiful is he? He made the barn owl and the snowy owl to fly and cry. And the full moon and the pastel sky. And, and he made you. He made you with your complexity and your beauty and your tenderness and your uniqueness and your stubbornness and the way in which you look which is unlike anybody else and the dreams that he's placed in your heart and the potential that he's, he's put in you. He made you. He made the Niagara Falls and the Angel Falls and the Water of Leith. He, <laughs> he just... He just made the whole deal. There is nothing that has been made that he didn't make. Listen to the scripture, Psalm 102. You laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hand. Jeremiah 10, 12. God made the earth by his power, stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Romans, Revelation 4, 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. He made all things. All things that are visible and invisible. In other words, all the tangible things that you can put your fingers on and all the stuff that you can't put your finger on. All the stuff that you can see and touch and appeal to our rational minds and all the stuff that you can't see and you can't touch and we struggle with our rational minds. All the emotions of a human heart, all the feelings that we have, all the love and the grace and the compassion and the potential and the, you know, all that stuff he's placed in our hearts and in our lives. He made all things. What does that tell me? It tells us there is nothing independent Nothing in this world. There is no God beyond God. There is no power beyond God. There is nothing that exists co-eternally with God. All things were created by him. And all things have their being because of him. In other words, listen. If God took his finger off the pulse of the universe, it would implode right now. Right now. If God said, I'm not interested anymore in this place... Right now, the whole thing would stop because he sustains all things by his powerful breath. How does he do it? I have no idea. But that he does it, I'm absolutely sure. There is nothing independent. 
It also means, and this is where we have to get our head around stuff, it also means there is nothing that's unspiritual. There, there is no such thing as a sacred secular divide. There's no such thing as the stuff that's spiritual and the stuff that's not spiritual. The stuff that we should be involved in and the stuff we shouldn't be involved in. Everything is spiritual. God created all things. You know, the framers of, of this, uh, this creed, they put this clause in because they wanted to counter a claim by, by a sect of Gnostics who wanted to say, because they liked the good stuff, that God only created the good stuff. But there was another God who was a bad God, and he created all the bad stuff. And so there was this war between good God and, and, and bad God. But the framers said, no, 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 that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches this. And it's hard to get our head around, and sometimes I wish it didn't teach this. But it says that God created all things. There is no God, there is no non-God created stuff. He created the reality and the potential for all the good stuff. And the, he created all the reality and the potential for all the other stuff. And he is working his purposes out in the middle of both stuffs. And we as the people of God are supposed to steward both stuffs. And one day he's wanting to come back for return on investment about how we dealt with both of those things. There is nothing which is out of control. Because he created all things. There, there is nothing over which he is not Lord right now. Which is freaky to get your head around because actually when you look at the world you think, oh God's gone and lost it. Or God's gone and left it to its own devices. No, no, no. The scripture teaches this. There is one throne in heaven and he's still on it. And so while wars happen and famines happen and, and the inhumanity between humanity, it's not a good phrase, but you know, while, while that stuff all happens in this world, God is still on the throne. He's not out of control, it's in his control, it's in his timing. There is stuff unseen that we can't get our head around. There's messed up stuff that we don't like. But there is a Father who is almighty, who created it all. And here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing that I, I need you to get your head around. All that stuff is totally incredible. But all that stuff is just interesting until you align it with the fact that God, this God, is also a Father. Until you get your head around that all this stuff, the power and the authority and the creativity comes in the skin of a father. It just becomes something that's intellectually helpful. But the moment it comes in the skin of a father, it gets downright personal. It gets relevant to you. It can change your life. Because all that power, that authority, that say-so, that headship, it, it, it comes in the skin of a father for you. There is nothing coming down the road at you that's as big as this. When I was a kid, I don't know if you did this, but um, I had a load of mates and we used to, I, know, I was probably 10, 11 years of age. This is before I realized I didn't know everything. And uh, we used to have these arguments about whose dad was bigger than the other dad. Do you have these ones? My dad can take your dad, you know? And he probably could, but, you know, my dad's got a gun or my dad's whatever. He didn't, but, you know, I did all this kind of stuff and my dad's good at this and my dad played this and my dad can do that. And we had these pathetic arguments about whose dad was better. But, but this dad, 
this dad, my dad, omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, my dad, that crazy stuff, there is nothing coming down the road at you. And the framers of this were very, very keen for us to understand who this father was. Saying to, to the people listening, this is not Zeus. This is not angry dad with, with lightning bolts. This is not emperor dad. This is not kind of controlling dad. You need to understand who this father is. Jesus is very concerned that you understand who the father is. You see, what happens is when we start talking about father and we sing songs to father, our mind initially goes to our dad or to dads that we have seen or dads that we have been. And when we begin to go, oh, I know how this goes. Because your dad was not perfect. Your dad let you down. Because that's what dads do. Your dad was perhaps a little bit performance orientated. And you know, you, you could come to him and get, and, and get him to approve of you, but only if you did well in the test. Or, or your dad was, was absent. He was iPad dad. You know, he was there, but he wasn't there. You know, he was home, but he was somewhere else. Or your, or your dad was perhaps worse than that. He was aggressive, or he was abusive, or he, whatever he was, but he wasn't perfect. And, and when you begin to talk about dad and fathers in heaven, then you begin to think, well, maybe he was like this, and maybe he does this, and maybe, and you begin to relate to him or not relate to him, depending upon your image of dad. But Jesus would want to say, hey, God is not the reflection of earthly fatherhood. He's the perfection of fatherhood. God is not some kind of cumulative gathering of all the best fathers that you can come up with. He is the perfection of fatherhood. And then Jesus tells this story. I think it's perhaps the most beautiful story that our world has ever come up with. He speaks to a bunch of guys, some of whom believed and some of whom didn't believe, some of whom were good and some of whom were not good. They call them Pharisees and tax collectors or teachers of the law and sinners and they're all together in one space and he starts to tell this story. He says, I want to tell you about what the father really looks like. And he says, well, he tells a story that you know really well. This is God. He says, there's a father who has two sons. One son was just a rebel and one son was a goody two-shoes. And the, and the rebel had had enough of being in the father's house, so he says to his dad, I want out and I want you dead. Well, he doesn't actually say that, but that's what he meant. I want you dead. I'd, I'd rather have my inheritance than your life. So can you give me my inheritance now? And it breaks his father's heart. And everyone listening to the story is totally devastated because this was awful in their culture. Is this one son wants to go and his father gets all the money together and he gives him his share of the inheritance and he goes off. The Bible says to a far country and he blows all the money and people in the audience are going, no way. Because like that would have taken him years to get that kind of money and he probably had to sell some of, liquidate some of his assets and sell some of his property to get the money together. And it was a dreadful thing and he spent all his money and it was awful. And then you know the story, he goes and has to feed pigs and it's awful and everyone in the audience is going, yes, pigs, awful, he deserves it, ha! And they're doing all this kind of thing and they're listening into the story. But Jesus is telling us about a father. He's saying this father is a father who releases his children. This father is not a father who wants tonight 
to force you to believe in him or force you to follow him or force you to behave in a certain way. That's not God. That's not this father. He's a father who says, if you want to go, you can go. I love you enough to let you go. And he's a father who knows that when you run from him, your life will begin to unravel. I mean, that's the reality of it. I'll tell you why. Because the moment that you run from the father like this, you run from the Father Almighty. You run from the Father who knows all things and can do all things. You run from the source of wisdom and so you do stupid. You run from the source of love and so you look for love in all the wrong places. You run from the source of purpose so you begin to live a life that's purposeless. And, and your life will not begin to unravel immediately but one day it will begin to unravel and you'll hurt people around you, people in your life because of it. So this guy's in a field. He's thinking, oh man, this sucks. I know what, my father is a good, he's a good dad and he's a good, he's a good boss. I'll go back to him and say, I'll, I'll serve you and I'll come back and just maybe feed some pigs or do, do something in your field because it would be so much better. And so he starts his journey back. And as he starts his journey back, the father sees him in the distance. The father releases him, but the father runs. There is a beautiful moment in this story. This father, this father almighty, this father omnipotent, he hitches up his skirts because back in the day they would wear these long dress things. And he hitches up his skirts and he runs in an undignified manner to get to his son. Why does he do it? Let me tell you two reasons. One, he does it because he loves him. He does it because he loves him. But secondly, he does it because there is an ancient ceremony There's an ancient ceremony that would have been carried out at the gate post of every village. And every time someone who was a stranger, who was not wanted in the village, came back, there would be an opportunity for this ceremony. It was called Kazeza. The ceremony of Kazeza would happen like this. Someone would come who'd, who'd, who'd abused the family and that the elders of the community would stand with that person. They'd take a clay pot and they would smash it into a hundred pieces And they would say, you are no longer worthy to be called a son of this village and this family. You are banished. Kazeza. And the father runs. I tell you why he runs. He doesn't just run because he loves him. He runs to get ahead of Kazeza. He runs to get ahead of shame. He runs to get ahead of that moment of shame for his son. And so he gets there and he runs and he hitches up his skirts and he gets ahead. To the moment that anybody who's run from God, the moment that any person who said, I'm not really interested in God very much, or the moment that anyone who said, I want my share of the inheritance, I'm out of here. The moment that they take one, one aspect of turning back towards him, the father runs. That's the father. And then he comes and The son says, you know, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, be quiet. You're my son. You were lost and now you're found. You know, this is incredible. Bring a robe and put it on his back. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. Bring sandals and put them on his feet. You are totally restored because you are my son and I love you. The father restores. And Jesus says this. This is what the father looks like. 
This is the Father Almighty. This is the one who sees you and knows exactly what you're doing right now. This is the one who knows everything about you. This is the one that can do everything for you. This is the one who is with you every moment of every day. This is the one who goes with you and knows about the illness and knows about the anxiety and knows about all the stuff in your heart. This Father. And when you take the character of this Father who runs for you, this Father who releases you, this Father who wants to restore you, and you wed it to the character of a God who can do absolutely everything everything. There is nothing coming down the road at you that compares to that. And you can stand the weight of your life on the belief in your heart that there is a God in heaven that loves you. And you can stand the weight of your life on the belief in your heart that there is a God in heaven who is Father, who is for you. And you can stand the weight of your life on the belief in your heart that there is never going to be a moment when he will leave you or forsake you. And you can stand the weight of your life on God. And you may have heard that a hundred times before, but that truth will change everything for you. And it's an act of rebellion. It's an act of rebellion against the culture that says there is no God There is no truth. There's just stuff and sex and people and power. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, seen and unseen. And we have confidence not to hang around in churches, but to walk into this world with adventure and confidence because he's a good, good father and he loves you and he's a great, great God who's got you. Shall we pray? You know, at the beginning of a new term, there is not a better time to come back to the Father. There's not a better moment to say, hey, I'm in. I'm not trusting in my finances or my friendships, my academic prowess, my relational skills. I'm standing on my belief that you're a good Father and a great God and he is here that's what we believe that he is here right now he's omnipresent and he knows that's what we believe we we believe that he's omniscient and he is able to do immeasurably more than you could even ask or imagine because he's omnipotent and you can trust him because he does not change. And he's dead. Those who know your name will trust you, oh God. So, Father, come and father us. 
where we have been fatherless, would you father us? Where we need to know your presence and your forgiveness and your restoration, would you father us? Where we're far from you and we're anxious, would you father us? Where we've rebelled against you, would you forgive us and father us? Where we have decided to trust in just about everything else, would you restore us and would you father us? Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to our hearts. And help us to worship you, obey you, and love you. We ask this in Jesus' name.